Aren't you thankful for our students this morning? Amen. They've led us in worship well today. What a joy it is to be in the house of the Lord and to welcome you to our worship time together today. Whoever you are, whatever has brought you to this place today, we are glad that you are here. If you're watching on Facebook Live, on our live feed, we're glad that you're here as well. Take a moment today and enjoy everything that goes on today. Listen to the word that is preached. Engage yourself in worship. We cast our eyes on things above today. Amen. And that is what we do. Welcome. If you are a first-time person with us, if this is your first time to join us in worship, if you're new, whatever category you find yourself in, know that we are delighted that you're here. Find that third panel in your worship guide. There's a perforated card there called a connection card. Fill that out. It lets us help to uh, know how to get to know you better. And then on the back, there's a prayer request. We can pray for you every Tuesday at 1.30 as our staff gathers for staff meeting today. If you are new with us and this is your first time with us, join our pastor and his wife in the foyer after the service so that we may give you a copy of his book, The Privilege of Worship, so that we can get to know you a little bit better. We're delighted that you're here. Let's stand and sing together as we cast our eyes on things above. We're marching to Zion today. Let's sing together. Love the Lord. Let's make that known today.
As we gather to prepare for the Lord's Supper, let's uh, just focus ourselves for a moment on what Jesus did in giving his life for us. You know, 1 Corinthians tells us that we should examine our hearts before we come and partake of the Lord's Supper. And so we want to do that, making sure that all of the distractions are gone. Isn't that interesting? Making sure that we can focus on what he did for us. Making sure that we are a believer because just as we're baptized, if we're a believer, we partake of the Lord's table as believers. And so this morning as we gather at the Lord's table and prepare for that, I want us to spend some focused time in prayer, examining our hearts and preparing ourselves for what God wants to do today. So if you're on the ground floor, if you would just take that kneeler and move it down and join me in kneeling, and then we'll be um, time to pray and just think through. And as you first get there settled, just examine your own heart yourself, focusing on uh, what God... Um, has done in your life, just allowing him to speak into your life and to show you areas that need to be uh, cleaned out, sins that need to be confessed, other changes that need to be made so that as you partake of the Lord's table today, you'll be ready. Lord, we gather this morning grateful for what you did for us 2,000 years ago. And Lord, the story of salvation never gets old. Lord, remembering what you did for us on Calvary never gets old. Lord, you brought radical transformation. You brought the opportunity for us to be reconciled with God. Whereas sin separates, you brought us together. And Lord, I pray for everyone in this room right now that we will have a personal relationship with you. God, for those in this moment, even as we pray, who do not yet know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that even in this moment, they would seek you and they would ask you to come into their hearts and lives. Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers, God, that we would have again the joy of our salvation as we remember what you did, your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. Lord, you taking the penalty of our sin upon yourself. Lord, may we rejoice and be so thankful and glad. Lord, we examine ourselves right now. Lord, for the things that we have done that we shouldn't have done, we confess those to you as sin. For the things that you've commanded us to do but that we haven't done, we also confess that to you as sin. We want to be clean before you, God. And Lord, as we gather around the table in a few moments and we remember what you did for us and we remember the power of the cross, the chains that were broken, the transformation that took place, God, we want this to be a special moment. So God, as the choir sings, as we prepare our hearts, Lord, speak to us, challenge us, and renew us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our deacons are going to now come and assemble as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper and remember what Jesus did for us all those years ago. Uh, Paul records in 1 Corinthians um, a challenge and an instruction for the early church. The church at Corinth was having some problems with practicing the Lord's Supper in an appropriate way. And uh, he, Paul wrote to them in this way and said, I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Today, as we remember what Jesus did for us, we do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a testimony of what we believe that Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. That when he died on the cross, he died for you and for me. He gave his life so we wouldn't have to give ours. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But thanks be to God, that verse continues and says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so God extends to us the offer of salvation if we will repent of our sins and turn to him. And the sacrifice that he made is so amazingly pictured in the Lord's Supper. When Jesus was celebrating that common Passover meal, he picked up a common everyday kind of bread that they had, unleavened bread, matzah we call it today. And as he looked at that bread, he saw in it a perfect symbol of what his body would look like in a few hours. He saw the bruises, he saw the piercings, he saw the stripes, and he said, this is my body. And it is going to be broken for you. Jesus gave his life for us. As you take the bread in just a moment, hold it in your hand, and as everyone receives there, just reflect upon what Jesus did for you. That if he hadn't have done that, where would you be? May we thank the Lord for his body broken for us. Lord, we thank you so much for you giving your life for us. God, we're grateful that you went to the cross. We're thankful, God, that you surrendered yourself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that we might be one. Lord, we're grateful for that sacrifice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, in the same way, he took the cup. And as he looked at that cup, he couldn't help but see a perfect symbol of his blood that would be shed for all of us and for all of the world. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin in God's economy. Blood is the greatest commodity that covers all things because life is in the blood. So that's why Jesus shed his blood for us, and that's why that sacrifice was needed. So as you take this cup and as you peer into it, think about the sacrifice that he made for you. And I pray that you will see how his blood has washed you white as snow through his forgiveness. Lord, we thank you so much for your blood that somehow, through the wonder of heaven, washes white as snow. Lord, here on earth, blood stains, but in heaven, blood cleanses. And so, Lord, we're grateful that you made this sacrifice for us. And we pray, God, that we would return that thanks to you in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. The Lord did good things for us, didn't he? Amen. As our deacons return to their seats and our ushers prepare to take the morning offering and receive that and our gifts that are given to the Lord, um, I want to offer you and usher in a challenge to you as a church family, Um, and that is to try the tithe. You know, we got to thinking this week, what could we do if all of us gave as God desires? Statistics tell us that in most churches, between 3 and 5% of church members actually tithe as, as God requires. And so what would happen if for just one month, everyone tithed? And so that's the challenge. That this month we would all do that. You take what you give in a, or, or what you uh, earn in a given month, you multiply by 10% and you give that. That would be uh, the starting base for a tithe. I don't care if it's gross or net at this point, just giving a tithe of, of your income and see what happens. Now, some of you might think, man, I know about how much money that would be and there is no way. We can't do that. Well, who says? Who says you can't do that? You might say, man, if we, if we gave like that, we'd be in financial ruin in a month. You wouldn't be in financial ruin in a month. And I tell you what, also, God won't let you be in financial ruin for being obedient to give to him. And so that's the challenge this month, for everyone to tithe the month of October. See how it goes. See what we could do. What more kind of ministries could we do? What kind of ministries could we fund that aren't being funded now because we're running behind budget? What could we do to advance God's kingdom? Just a simple question. What could we do if we all gave as God desires? Could you accept that challenge? If you're not already tithing, I'd encourage you to go home today, talk about it, to pray, and then come back next week ready to commit to that and see what God would do. Our ushers are going to come forward to receive this morning's offering, and Brother Harold Griffith is going to go and offer our prayer. And let's seek the Lord as we prepare to give to support the Lord's work in our church and literally around the world through our tithes and offerings. Let's pray together. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord God, and to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. In him we rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I will present my thank offering to you, and I pray that it will be used to advance your kingdom. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. May God bless the message that will be delivered by our pastor this morning, and may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
can't preach like that, you need to go back home. That's kind of become an anthem for our church, hasn't it? We will remember God has done so many good things through the years for us, his people, and we just are thankful for that. Lives changed, transformation made, healing, all of that stuff that God brings, and aren't you glad that he does it? And that's what we want the rest of the world to know that he can bring those good things in their lives as well. But unfortunately, in most of our world today, that's not happening because we live in a gray world. Right and wrong are no longer black and white. The things that would make sense, like love and hate being very different things, aren't so different. The things, the lines that should be clear between boy and girl are not even clear. And we live in a world where the lines are blurred and blurring more and more every day. But thankfully, the Bible sheds light on our gray world. Through October and November, we're going to see what the Bible has to say about our response to culture, to Satan's schemes that are bringing about that, and then specifically four areas in our culture where we need to have biblical answers. And that is racism, gender identity, the family, and materialism. And this morning, I want us to see what kind of light the Bible sheds on our approach to these issues in our culture. You know, as I watch uh, believers reacting to culture and approaching the numerous issues, I, I see two prominent approaches. The first approach that I see over and over again is just apathy. Apathy is defined as a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. And so when confronted with a gray world, the approach to the culture is from those with apathy, it's just a, oh well, it is what it is. That's just how it's going to be. If that's what they want, let them do it. We don't want to offend anyone, and they just let things go. When we're apathetic, we just don't do anything. So the culture carries on at will, and the result then of Christian apathy is unbiblical views gaining popular acceptance in the culture. Why is the traditional family being challenged today? Why is there so much gender identity confusion? Uh, why has materialism run rampant in America? Why is our default racism and hatred instead of love and forgiveness? Because by and large, the apathetic church has said, we don't want to get involved. Just let us go over and sing our songs and read our Bible in our holy country club and y'all do what you want to do. Now we dress up this apathy in the clothes of love. 
People who are being apathetic, these Christians, they'll say we're doing what Jesus would do, but we aren't. Because you see, we don't love if we're apathetic about sin because Jesus sure wasn't. Oh yeah, he, he offered lots of forgiveness and grace, but do you know what he also said? Go and sin no more. He wasn't apathetic. Consider Proverbs 13, 24 that says, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Solomon's showing us that if we just let our kids do whatever they want and we don't give them guidance and instruction and discipline, then we're not showing love to them. We're showing hate to them. So wouldn't it follow that if you don't discipline and correct sin in culture, you're not showing love. You're actually showing hatred. So in doing what we don't want to do, we actually are doing what we don't want to do. We certainly don't want to show hatred to the world. Then apathy is not an option. Another prominent approach by many believers is anger. Now, there is such thing as a righteous anger, like Jesus exhibited there at the temple when he cleansed the temple and told them, my house will, become a, will be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. And there is such thing as a righteous anger, but that's not what... I hear and see from most believers. Uh, what I see is just pure deep anger. It's sarcastic, it's harsh, it's unfriendly, and I'm not sure what these people hope to accomplish with that. Because when you fire off something with your tongue or your fingers or your pen, such language doesn't build bridges, it just blows them up with dynamite. I mean, how do you react when somebody is angry towards you? Do you want to listen? <laughs> no. You either run away or you dig in and build a wall. So anger is really not an option. In Proverbs 15 verse 1, we read, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Christian people try to dress up their anger with some kind of righteousness, but it's not. It's, it's just anger most of the time. And to confront culture with anger does little good. It only stirs up more anger. So we need another approach. Another approach that would gain us in hearing. Another approach that would penetrate culture. And thankfully, the Bible gives us that. God gives us the right approach for a culture in his word. And we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. So if you haven't already, turn there in your copy of God's Word, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. The culture of the first century really wasn't that different from our culture today. Religion was popular, but it didn't have anything to do with a personal relationship with God. Um, Sexual perversion was rampant. Interactions between various groups in society, whether they be different classes or different races and more, were fraught with hostility. And false teachers were abundant, offering wrong answers to the questions posed by society. It's very much like our day. And so into that world, Jesus launched the early church. Now, learning to navigate that culture was difficult for the early church. In fact, a lot of the epistles helped provide correction and help them to know what to do with certain issues that were going on in that time. But God gave the early believers a model to follow. And that model was not to sit back and do nothing and be apathetic, nor was it to start yelling in the face of the culture what the church was supposed to do. The model God gave them was to be an ambassador for Christ. An ambassador seeking to bring, bring reconciliation between a broken world and a saving God. Are you familiar with the role that an ambassador plays? I mean, you probably know that an ambassador represents his or her country in another country. The primary role of a, of a United States ambassador is to act as a representative of the President of the United States in a foreign land, whatever that country is that that ambassador is appointed to. The best ambassadors maintain good relationships with the countries where they are 
living. They help maintain American interests there. They work to prevent war. They work to keep trade flowing and promote that trade. And so an ambassador plays an important role in a foreign land. If you think about that, compared to our home in heaven, this is a foreign land. Therefore, when anyone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, God appoints him or her as an ambassador for Christ wherever they are living. Whatever town, whatever city, whatever nation, he says you are now an ambassador for Christ. And in this text of 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to note three qualifications of an ambassador for Christ and see how we can live those out in our culture for today. The first qualification to be an ambassador, you must be sold out for God. Look at verses 11 through 13. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. A United States ambassador lives as an American in a foreign land. And so our country is, ju is judged by the actions and the life of that ambassador. So it is for an ambassador of Christ. Jesus Christ is often judged by the actions and life of his followers. People look at us to get a clue of what Jesus is like. Therefore, as Paul shows here, we must be sold out for God. As Paul wrote this Corinthian church, he gives them a glimpse into who he is. And we discover that Paul was sold out for God. What does it mean to be sold out for God? Well, first it means that you fear the Lord. Did you notice that? Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Since Paul feared the Lord, he worked hard to serve the Lord and to persuade people to follow the Lord. Now, this fear that Paul's talking about here doesn't mean that he was horrified by God and scared of him, that it was just some kind of thing that he thought he was going to get smitten if he didn't follow the Lord. It meant that he knew he was accountable to God. It meant he knew that he had to answer for his actions. He knew he needed to answer for what he was called to do. Like an ambassador reports back to the president and serves at the will of the president, so we report back to God, and we will have to give an account. So in order to be an ambassador for Christ, you need to be sold out for God, which means you fear the Lord. But it also means that you have an obvious faith. Paul says at the end of verse 11, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Paul hopes that those who know him and his, his helpers will be able to answer those who do not by saying, you know, we know Paul. We know those guys that hang out with him. And we know that they are the real deal because they have an obvious faith. Do you have an obvious faith? If someone who didn't know you were to ask someone who does know you, if you are a Christian, would their answer be, to borrow the statement of our kids, well, duh. Do you have a duh invoking life I mean that's what it should be like right well when somebody says well are they a believer somebody who knows us says yeah if there's ever a believer that's a believer we should live such a duh invoking life that our faith is obvious to a watching world if we're an ambassador for Christ to be an ambassador you've got to be sold out for God and that's because only those who are truly sold out for God can convince others who don't serve God that they should follow God. Your message will always be heard in the context of your character. Just as a United States ambassador is the United States to foreign peoples, an ambassador for Christ is Jesus to people. If we want to be light in our culture, we must be sold out 
to God. To be an ambassador, not only though must you be sold out for God, but second, you must be motivated by holy conviction. Look at verses 14 through 17. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should, not, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. To be an ambassador, you must be motivated by holy conviction. A United States ambassador speaks for our country. But that ambassador must have the conviction that the U.S. interests are best. He has to be able to speak with a confidence and a conviction Likewise, an ambassador for Christ must have a holy conviction that God's interests for the world are best. And that conviction then motivates us. Well, what does it mean to be motivated by a holy conviction? Well, for one, it means that you are compelled to tell. You're compelled to tell. Paul says Christ's love compels us. Some translations say it controls us because he was convinced of what Jesus did on the cross. Paul realized that if anyone would put their faith in Jesus, they would be saved. They could die to themselves. They could live for Jesus. They could push aside the darkness of the world, and they could live in the light of Christ, the love of Jesus Christ expressed in his life and death and resurrection was the controlling factor of Paul's life. And, and that is what motivated him to plant churches. That's what motivated Paul to get back up when he had literally been beaten down. That's what ca caused him to then get back on a ship when his last ship had been shipwrecked. That's what motivated him every day. Christ's love compelled him. It convinced him. It convicted him. It motivated him. And that has to be the case for us as well. We must be compelled to tell. But second, to have a holy conviction doesn't just mean you're compelled to tell. It means you see people as Jesus sees them. Paul says he doesn't view people from a worldly point of view in verse 16. He sees them as the new creation that they could be. One commentator said this, to judge others according to worldly standards or from a sinful point of view, only furthers division and discord rather than fostering reconciliation. Paul saw in people and showed to those people what they could be in Jesus. One of the reasons of our lack of cultural impact as a church, as a collective body of Christ, I'm talking about the church universal it's too often we see people who are living in darkness as the enemy. But they're not the enemy. They're the reason we're here. We must see them for who they can be in Christ and help them to get there. And as we win them, we'll, be, we'll, we'll bring light to our culture and the culture will be transformed. So see, to be an ambassador for Christ, you've got to be sold out for God and You've got to be motivated by a holy conviction. But third, to be an ambassador for Christ, you must be committed to a divine purpose. In verse 18, we read this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? That's the colon there. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The best United States ambassador 
speaks two languages. The language of America and the language of his foreign nation. And the reason that he needs to be able to speak both of those languages is to be able to bring reconciliation between one nation and another. And that's how it is for an ambassador for Christ. He lives speaking two languages. The language of the word of God and the language of the culture in which he's placed. The job of an ambassador for Christ is to bring reconciliation between the two very different and often opposed nations. That is the ambassador's divine purpose. Paul says that Christ has entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a powerful thing because it, it involves a changed relationship. We bring people into relationship by introducing them to Jesus Christ. And then he changes them by the power of his Holy Spirit. Reconciliation brings a complete change. Reconciliation is how the hater can become loving and the racist can become uniting. Reconciliation is how the homosexual can be set free, how the broken can be made whole, how the addict can be healed, and how you and I can be saved. God has given believers the job of helping bring reconciliation between God and mankind. Now, we can't bring the conviction, and we certainly can't do the saving. Our job is what Paul says here, to do the appealing and then the Holy Spirit works in that to bring conviction and to do the saving and to help the reconciliation to take place. But our job is to do the appealing. Paul says God is making his appeal through us. We speak the language of God into the language of culture. We implore the world to the world, be reconciled to God. That is our purpose. That is our reason for getting up in the morning. Now, you may be in elementary school. But your main job as a Christian as you're learning math and social studies is to actually help your friends come to Jesus. Now, you may be a high school or, or college student and you're working on that future career that you're going to have, but your main job is to implore your friends to be reconciled to God. You may be a school teacher or a mechanic or a nurse or an accountant, but your main job when you walk into that school or shop or hospital or office each day is to help your colleagues be reconciled to Jesus Christ. That is your divine purpose. How do we do that? By living as ambassadors for Christ. Every day, everywhere, in every Wherever we go, in whatever we do, wherever we say, we're sold out for God, motivated by holy conviction, committed to a divine purpose, and we speak the language of the world and the language of God and bring the two together. We translate God's word into the language of a lost and dying world. We don't ignore them and let them do what they want. We don't yell at them. We appeal to them as an ambassador. Now, does that mean they're always going to like what we say or do? <laughs> no. Does that mean they'll always understand what we do? No. But they will give us a hearing. And as we make the appeal for God, the Holy Spirit can take that appeal and let it turn over and over and over in their minds and hearts and, and bring order and, and reconciliation and transformation. I hate to say it, our culture will not be transformed by a different president or a different governor. It won't even be transformed by making sure everyone has enough food. It won't be trans transformed through town hall meetings or legislation. Our culture will only be transformed by the power of the gospel as individual Christians truly live lives as ambassadors for Christ. It's the only way to bring it about. But what does that look like out there in the, quote, real world? Well, we saw it this week. This week we saw two ambassadors of Christ in the same place on the same day. It wasn't in church. It wasn't on a seminary campus. 
It didn't happen during an evangelistic crusade or at some gigantic student event. It wasn't even on Bring Your Bible to School Day. It was in a courtroom in Dallas, Texas, during victim impact statements in a murder trial for Amber Geiger for the murder of Botham Jean. As usual in cases like this, cop hatred and racism raise their ugly heads. But even with all of that cultural ugliness outside the courtroom, what happened in the courtroom on that day was as holy as the most sacred of worship services in the most beautiful of churches. The videos have gone viral. You've probably seen it. The images are stunning. But just to remind you of what happened, Brant Jean, Botham Jean's brother, publicly forgave Amber Geiger for shooting his brother. He encouraged her to ask forgiveness of God, and then he said, I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Brant then asked Judge Tammy Kemp if he could hug Geiger. And there was a pause because you don't do that. And then he said through tears, please. And she said, go ahead. The bailiffs were nervous. You got a victim's brother, the murderer. What happens? As he leaves the stand, she jumps up and they, she runs to him. And they embraced for a long time. It's a powerful, powerful scene. You could hear people crying. You could see, hear the sniffles and the tears. You could see the judge wiping tears from her eyes. But the story wasn't over. Because then Judge Kemp, moved by the young man's work of forgiveness, she leaves. She goes to the Jean family. She hugs them. She offers them words of encouragement. She goes then to Amber Geiger, and she speaks for a moment to her. Then she leaves, goes in her chambers, comes back out with her Bible, and she says, this is my Bible. I have three or four more at home. This is one I use every day. You can, you can use it, but here's where you start. This is your job for the next month. And she turned to John 3.16, read John 3.16 to her, told her a bunch of other stuff that we can't hear on the, the videos, but she was obviously witnessing to her. Amber gets up, hugs her, says something to her that then causes the judge to say, ma'am, it's not because I'm good. It's because I believe in Christ. That's what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. In the most horrific time of your life, showing grace and forgiveness. And in the midst of your job, making your main job to show Christ. Because of her position, Judge Kemp, you've probably seen, is getting backlash from our darkened world. We could expect it. I pray God's protection on her and encouragement for her. But Brant Jean isn't being ignored either. People are throwing all kind of stuff at him for, for that and making that forgiveness thing way different than it really was. But you know what? That's the life of an ambassador. I pray that they'll remain true to their calling, that their tribe will increase, and that their ambassadorship, though, will lead thousands, if not millions, to come into the light of Christ. I don't think either one of them thought that that was going to be something that went viral. They were just being Jesus. One was Jesus, and then the other one was Jesus. And God did great things. I challenge you to be an ambassador for Christ. God is making his appeal through you to a world that is confused and that's struggling. May we implore the world to be reconciled to Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we live in a world that is so messed up. And God, we have the answer. Help us not to keep it to ourselves. Lord, we want to penetrate culture with the light of the gospel. And so, Lord, we know, God, that Jesus saves, Jesus changes, Jesus brings transformation. And so, Lord, may we be his ambassadors. May we be your ambassadors. Lord, during this time of invitation, I pray that you would encourage us to, to follow that calling. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.